Welcome to Hunger for Wholeness. I'm your host, Robert Nicastro. This week, Elia and Gabby speak with Korean theologian Grace Jisun Kim. In the beginning of the conversation, Elia and Grace discover their shared love of K-drama. Then, they unpack Grace's varied experiences with social justice, patriarchy, and technology spanning from Korea to the West. Well, Grace, first of all, it's great to have you on the podcast, A Hunger for Wholeness. We talked about this a while ago when we were together in St. Simon Island, I believe it was, in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Let's begin by if you tell us a little bit about yourself for our audience. I don't think you're as well known as you are in your audience. So let's bring our audiences together and tell us who you are and what drives your passions. Well, Sister Daniel, it's so great to be on this fantastic podcast. And as you said, your listeners may not know who I am. So I'm just thrilled to be invited and so honored to be on your podcast. And I look forward to having you on my podcast later in the year called Madang Podcast. So just to say a little bit about who I am, I teach theology at Earlham School of Religion. It's a Quaker institution, but I am a Presbyterian, PCUSA. So I'm ordained PCUSA minister. And I write in the intersection of feminist theology, Asian American theology, creation care, pneumatology, and a whole bunch of other things on racism and sexism. So that's kind of what I do. And as I mentioned, I'm the host of Madame Podcast, and I can't wait to have you on later in the year. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much. And I believe your background is... Korean, and I've been watching a lot of Korean dramas, so I feel that I somehow may have a Korean gene somewhere because I actually love them. Oh, that's so wonderful. I just out of curiosity, what's happening in Korea today? Do you, are you facing a lot of the same issues and problems as we are in here in the U.S.? Well, you know, I just came back recently from Korea. I took students to Korea. It was a textual theology class which was postponed from 2020 because of the pandemic. And then we tried to do it 2021, but they had all that quarantine. So I finally got to take a few students this summer. You know, it's so good to be back to visit Korea. I was born in Korea. And I think the last time I was there was four years ago. And Korea is a very fast-paced society. So, you know, when I was born... And we immigrated in 1975. So from 1975 till now, you know, society itself has progressed drastically faster than anyone had anticipated. So economically, they're doing better. You know, technology, you know, they produce laptops and phones and cars now. And as you mentioned, you watch K-drama, which is so, I, I love when non-Koreans watch K-drama, because I appreciate yeah. K-drama so much as a Korean, but when others, non-Koreans are watching it, I'm just so thrilled that people find it entertaining. I am. I actually love them. I think I've watched 10 already. <laughs> wow, that's so good. I watch yeah. it nonstop. So I'm so glad that you're into it because in so many ways, because K-drama itself is a very unique kind of niche, but I always feel like my life itself is a K-drama. <laughs> so I just 
thrilled when other people <laughs> K-drama. You know, there's certain values, though, in the K-dramas. It's about persons and family and a lot of food, a lot of eating in K-dramas. Everything is resolved with eating. Uh, a lot of kimchi and soju. <sighs> but there's something about personal relationships that's really quite distinct in the K-dramas that I find missing sometimes in American television, quite honestly. We're, we're kind of like, we want to get right to the action, you know, of either killing or love or whatever it is. But there's a gap of emotions in the K-dramas that's, I think it's really special. But you just nailed it because K-drama is about relationships. And you'll see, you know, all these characters introduced. And at the end of the K-drama, you realize everybody's connected to somebody through something, either from family or yes. neighborhood or workplace. Everyone's intertwined. And I would say about 15 to 20% of the scenes are people eating. And eating is a very relational thing. So in Korea, you know, a greeting would be, have you eaten? And if you have not eaten and I have eaten, it doesn't matter that we all go to eat together again. Yes. Because eating is relational. Yeah. It is how we come together. Food is so important in Korea. So this past trip, I just ate so much food. Yeah. It doesn't matter if all, if they say we have to eat, then you just go and eat again. Right. The relationship is before anything else. And that's what's so interesting. And the sharing of food, you know, it's like, you know, even if you can't afford it, they're going to give it to you anyway, type thing. Yeah. And they'll pay for the food. It doesn't matter if you're there. And, you know, I've had non-Western, I mean, non-Asian students and they're all timid. You know, it's costly and everything. They're like, don't worry about anything. And they'll just cover it. Yeah. Because it's all relationship. And it doesn't matter if you have the money or if you've already eaten. Food just brings us together. Yeah. And, you know, if you watch K-drama, you know, these stay-at-home moms, some of them will wait. You know, if it's dinner time and they're hungry, they'll wait until their child gets home. Because it is relationship. It's not about just feeding yourself. It's about relationship and spending time with your kids so even though you're really hungry you know western people will just eat when we're hungry but yeah we will wait and eat together because nobody wants to eat alone interesting actually as a metaphor for our podcast which is called a hunger for wholeness yes and i love the title i love the title yeah and so eating relationality like the relationships fulfill us in our hungers right you know you began by naming a number of issues that you're involved in and working in and writing in sexism racism genderism I'm interested between East and West. Do you see these same issues in Korea as you do in the U.S.? Or are they different? Or, you know, what's going on there compared to here? Yeah, I think globally, you know, we are dealing with issues. sexism. I think globally, that's a global issue. I think, you know, economy, the socioeconomic status, you know, there's poverty everywhere. So, you know, that is also a global issue. So that's happening in the East and the West. Racism is dealt differently in the East and the West, but definitely there. So I think these 
big issues are global issues. Yeah. How we deal with them is very differently and how it appears is slightly different too. So I think the example with sexism, I grew up in Canada, but now I teach in the U.S. I think Canada, U.S. sexism is very similar. It's present in the workforce, in the academy, in our communities, and in Christianity. Yeah. So we have this white male God and a white male Jesus. Somehow he's a white male Jesus. So a Western, by the way, white, male and Western, right? Blonde hair, blue eyed. And I am finishing up a book on this and I called it whiteness. It's coming out with InterVarsity Press, but they changed the title to When God Became White. And I thought that wasn't what I was writing. But, you know, that has caused us to believe in a white male God. So because of this white male God and a white male Jesus, a very Western Jesus. It's a gendered God, and I want to move away from that gendered God. Yeah. But that creates this sexism within the church. So that itself is very problematic. In the East, you know, we have these white missionaries who went to Asia. So, uh, you know, Christianity didn't really flourish in China or in Japan, right. but it flourished rapidly in, in Korea. And then in other parts, um, it's growing like in India, in Malaysia or Singapore. It's, it's small or the Philippines, you know, in other parts, it's flourishing, but not so much yeah. in China and in Japan. You know, so when they brought the white male Jesus, that's what we ended up worshiping in Asia. So we have this white kind of Western Jesus that we are worshiping. Really? Oh, yeah. So I remember during my seminary years, and that was in the 1990s, I went to India. And the same Jesus that I had, like the, you know, the I think it's Solomon picture. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was Solomon, but somebody's picture, the very kind of the white, Jesus that people had in their homes. I went to India and it's the same white Jesus in the churches and in the homes. So when white missionaries went to parts of Asia, they brought the white male Jesus. Yeah. That itself causes a lot of sexism within the faith community. Yeah. Asian culture itself is very patriarchal. It is. Yeah. India has its own patriarchy, but then in the East Asian countries, uh, like Japan and Korea and China, we have Confucianism, which is so patriarchal. So that itself is embedded. So you get many layers of patriarchy and sexism. So that is something that, you know, Asian countries are trying to fight. But Confucianism, you know, Confucianism taught that women need to obey three people in their life. Husband? The father, who's the third? Okay, so as a child, you obey your father. And yeah. then as a wife, you obey your husband. As a widow, you obey your son. Oh my gosh. Thank God I, I don't have two out of three of those. No, actually, I have no three. I don't have any of them. So I'm completely off the hook there. That's why it was important to bear sons because your son is going to carry on the family name. And they are the rule of the family. So as an older woman who is widowed, you obey your son. 
I want to press this a little bit more in terms of patriarchy because this is a huge issue for the church and for, for Christianity. And it's one of the reasons I think, believe it or not, I think our dualisms, our, our disconnectedness, our drive for power, our drive for technology and the power of technology are really related to this issue of patriarchy. And one of the things that I've thought about is that technology, like the way artificial intelligence is shifting the boundaries of human personhood because, well, we can hybridize, you know, with stuff. We can, even social media, like you may not know who's on the other end, who you're texting, but you're connected to that person. So it's a different type of connection than in the old days, in the non, you know, the non-social media days. It's like you had to meet someone and then you would see their face. Now we're kind of faceless connectors, you know. But I've wondered if this is actually shifting everything about us. So that um I I mean I've actually wondered if what's driving technology is some kind of deep felt need to get beyond these limits of patriarchy and the limits that confine us from true holism or true relational holism, which I do think artificial intelligence and I think a proper use of technology can afford us, that we can really move into kind of a new type of personhood. And I even think like the shifts in gender and identity today are really efforts to move beyond, like not to be confined and constrained by these, you know, principles from the past. And you raise such an important question. AI is not really my specialty, but I read some articles recently and I think what you're saying is so true. It's pushing boundaries and we don't know who's on the other end. But the articles that I've read is so many people in AI are men. So not many girls are interested in AI yet. Our careers, not many women are in AI. Right. So because of that, it's still problematic. Because well, yeah. But I wonder if it's like a Jungian thing, right? It's like the anima and the animus. It's like there's something about men that needs to be, and maybe not male, <laughs> in a sense, maybe there's something going on there, like a reverse psychology that, you know, men maybe, how do we know? We're just, we kind of assume that men are, you know, okay with their male power, but how do we know that really? I mean, what if, this is just a what if, you know, there is a real desire for a balance of relationality and power within the male, you know, that artificial intelligence or, and maybe there are other things going on here that, you know, don't meet the immediate eye. That's all I'm saying here. I was just curious what Gabby might think about this, because you're, you're a young person who deals okay. a lot with technology and social media. I would say that I think you're definitely onto something with like men not actually really wanting the whole of male power like they benefit from it but i don't think like i've seen my friends get like really uncomfortable when they realize like the position they're in as guys versus like the position my female friends are in or like you know when a woman crosses the street because it's late and he's tall and she doesn't want to get hurt like that makes them uncomfortable i think so i think you're on something there and then i definitely think that the AI field is very, you know, relational, as you said, right? And that like people who talk to AIs, right? They they want to forge a connection. They want to escape the real world. So why wouldn't that include like oppression? And yeah, actually, I'm a proponent of AI. Mm -hmm. I'm a little, you know, me too. I'm not a 
fake transhumanists, I'm a little transhumanist. <laughs> so I think it can really benefit us because I think we've come so far, but we're we're not all that great. You know, look at us. We're kind of a mess, don't you think? <laughs> oh, we're a total mess. We're a total mess. <laughs> I mean, look at this poor world that, you know, we're kind of ripping apart and, you know, it's just, it, it's sad, but we have the capacity. You know, here's the good news. We have the capacity to become a new type of person. And I think artificial intelligence can really help us in that trajectory. Yeah, oh, I totally agree with you, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I would love to see a world that's post-racist, post-sexist, you know, and a whole new kind of personhood and deep relationality, you know, emerging. Great. And we can do these things. As the old adage goes, we'll never solve our problems with the same thinking that created them. So what must we change to promote a more just planet? Next, Ilya and Gabby ask more about what role wholeness plays in a new world. And Grace then shares with us the challenge of deconstructing her Western education to make room for Eastern ideas and culture. So we're all about wholeness. Are, are you about wholeness as well in your work? I'm going to assume you are. Yeah, but. Uh-huh, I am. And, you know, when I was doing my PhD many years ago, many decades ago, I was thinking of writing a book, Holiness and Wholeness. But anyway, I never got to that. But I think <laughs> I move away from holiness, but I think the wholeness is so important in all that we do as human beings. Yeah. yeah. What do you think can bring about wholeness? I have my own ideas here, but I'm just curious. What do you think? I think, you know, as a theologian, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier about dualism. And, you know, I just want to pick up on that. I think dualism has been so problematic within Christianity, you know, with the Greco-Roman philosophy, just influencing the early Christianity. I'm wondering if Christianity merged elsewhere, we wouldn't have this dualistic problem. But I think dualism itself is so problematic in the sense that it really divided the world in so many categories was unnecessary. So one of them would be the mind, the spirit, the body, you know, the dualism of the body and the spirit. And that has led us down this road of brokenness and moving away from wholeness. So much of my work in pneumatology is to kind of bridge that gap together because going to achieve some sense of wholeness, we cannot have this dualistic understanding of ourselves that Christianity really, really reinforced that, you know, it doesn't matter how we live in this world, you know, we're going to die and live so well, you know, our spirit will live on and we'll have this beautiful life in heaven, you know, that kind of teaching. So for me, much of my work, I draw upon the Asian concept of chi for my work in pneumatology. So for your audience, maybe people are aware of the understanding of chi. You know, it's spelled different ways. In Korea, we spell it K-I, sometimes that way. But in China, they spell it C-H-I or C-H apostrophe I. Because the majority of East Asians are Chinese, I just spell it C-H-I in my work. Because that's a very common way that the Chinese people write qi. So for the Western listeners, qi, you know, 
people have heard it in Tai Chi, in Reiki, in Taekwondo, Qigong. So people may be familiar in that way. So in Asia, you know, we're familiar in that way too, but Qi is a very common term in our everyday language. So if our spirit is down, they, someone will say, well, let's build up your chi, you know, or your chi is really low. Let's work on your chi. That's the common language in Asia. So, and chi is this understanding of the spirit, which is so embodied. So when you're doing acupuncture in Asia, and a lot of people here in, in the West go to an acupuncturist or do acupuncture, but a lot of it has to do with the movement of our chi in our body. So, you know, Chinese doctors mapped out the chi path in our body thousands of years before Western doctors did the blood, you know, how our blood flows. Yeah. If a chi movement is blocked, like in the shoulder, that's why you have shoulder pain. And that's when the doctors will go in and put acupuncture to fix the flow of chi because not flowing the right way. So it's a really embodied understanding of the spirit. It's not this Western understanding of spirit, something out there. And, oh, you know, we're saying, come spirit, come, as if the spirit is so detached to our bodies. So, and the understanding of chi is the same as this Hebrew understanding of, you know, spirit, this energy, breath, light. That was biblical understanding of the spirit in the New Testament, the pneuma, right. you know, energy, the breath of God. That is the same as how Asians understand chi. I love that, actually. Yeah. Yes. So for me, this working toward wholeness is so important that we don't break apart and think of ourselves in this dualistic way, this separation between the mind and the body and the spirit. It's really holistic. And so we need to work on it all kind of together. We cannot separate it and say, okay, I'm just going to go pray today and work on my spirit. You know, prayer is this bodily experience. It is what we do with our hands and our feet. We cannot continue to have this separation, this dualistic understanding that the Western church continues to teach and preach about. Yeah. This wholeness is this all togetherness. They're working on our chi, working on our body and the spirit, which not be separated. Do you think that, like, viewing yourself as like one? rather than like multiple and with with the idea of chi say like do you think that actually improves all of the parts more than like working on each individually or believing them as separate yeah i think it's helpful because once we realize if we work on building our chi our spirit then that is connected to our physical being our mental being our spiritual being it's so interconnected the separation that the Western philosophy, Western Christianity has done is very detrimental to our being and to our working towards this wholeness. 
Mm-hmm. However, the listeners are thinking about wholeness. For me, it encompasses the whole being. We cannot separate it. So I think it's so important that we work together and this she understanding. And so I bring in as she pneumatology will really help us to build this she, this spirit, this holiness that we are thinking about that you cannot separate it from this Western understanding that so for me, because I was educated in the West, I have to do a lot of deconstructing, a lot of relearning as I try to embrace this Asian understanding, this Asian philosophy. Because for me, I grew up in Canada from the 1970s, and so much of the racism made me hate my own Koreanness, my own Asian you know, hiding behind, trying to forget my language and my heritage, resisting going to Korean language school, resisting going to a Korean church. So much of that. And it's not just me. So many of the immigrants went through that phase. And not just Korean Americans, but Japanese, Chinese Americans, Indian Americans. We went through that phase. But now that we're, you know, 2023 and moving on with K-drama and K-pop, and now beauty product, you know, there's all this influence. And so we're not embarrassed anymore. This concludes the first part of our conversation with Grace Jisun Kim. Be sure to listen next week when Elia and Gabby ask Grace about her Korean North American perspective on affirmative action and her international perspective on the plausibility of planetary justice. A special thanks to our partners at the Fetzer Institute. I'm Robert Nicastro. Thanks for listening.